0: This has been a great week. Um, I just love this camp. I love all of you. The singing is just everything everyone it led me to expect coming here. And I want to thank you all for just welcoming me so warmly, (laughs) warmly, get it, Um, (laughs) into your beautiful camp and your beautiful JFO, CFO family. So let's take a moment in prayer. Thank you, God, for the beauty of this day, for the beauty of these souls, for the life you have given us, the bounty of our world. Thank you, God. Amen. So I mentioned there have been some amazing synchronicities this week. Diane Bush in Creative Writing shared a passage out of a Glenn Clark book, and then that night Mike shared that very same passage in one of his talks. Um, And I mentioned the synchronicity with Kirsten and my uh, journeys. And Carol in her prayer prep mentioned some of the same books I've mentioned in my talks. Um, And then Mike's talk this morning was right in line with what I had planned to speak about tonight. So it may seem like it dovetails beautifully, which I think it will, um, but we didn't talk, neither of us knew what either of us was talking about. So um, it's just another uh, interesting synchronicity. So Mike shared a passage from Corinthians in which Paul is chastising, if I can use that word, the people for their dinners in which they marginalized the poor who couldn't afford to bring food and so were left hungry. And he told them this isn't the way that it should be done. And others had more than they needed, had drunk too much, um, and yet there were still people who were hungry. And it occurred to me that that may well have been the origin of potluck dinners. Uh, which we had a, a regular basis growing up in the Methodist Church. We were known for singing and potlucks. Um, my talk this morning, is, a- I mean this morning, this evening, is actually about traveling, both actually and metaphorically, and the lens and filters through which we view our world. I'm an amateur photographer, and I love to capture my impressions of my travels seeing both the interesting details and the overall picture, capturing pictures of people of different places doing what they're doing. I love to travel and since I'm semi-retired I'm able to take a few trips a year. I like taking tours to foreign countries. Some people like to travel on their own. I like tours because, uh, especially in a place where I don't speak the language, I like to just relax and be shown the country. And I learn so much from the tour guides who know their culture. They tell me things I wouldn't learn on my own. We get to go places I wouldn't necessarily go on my own. And I just find it so much more relaxing to take in a country if someone else is planning all the details. Um, Traveling on a tour has a trade-off because you don't have as much flexibility. I know my brother-in-law loves to travel, but he hates tours. He always does his own planning and he sees great things, but I don't think that he learns as much about the country as I get to on a tour. I found a tour company that I really enjoy traveling with, and they usually fold in some flexibility in the time, usually an afternoon off here or there, or a full day off, so you can sit and relax, or sit at a cafe and watch the people, or take an optional tour, um, or just really soak in a place. In photography, I used to use my old non-digital camera. It's funny, I'm, I'm looking at all the fans out there and we commented in our prayer group that we'll know who went to prayer group by how many fans there are out there. Anyway, um, little side detour. Um, well, I used to use my old non-digital camera, which was an old Minolta I inherited from my father when he passed away. He too loved to travel and he loved taking pictures uh, but he rarely took pictures of people he had this belief that sticking people in front of some scenery ruined the scenery and so consequently his slideshows tended to be a little bit boring to my mind because there were never any people in them occasionally he'd make my sisters or I and I stand in front of something and he'd take a picture and when we were young we used to hate that so you know there were a lot of grumbling looking faces in those pictures but I love taking pictures of people as well as scenery. Now, in taking pictures, the photographer can change the picture depending on what filter or lens he or she uses, what setting of aperture, what film speed they choose. Um, I could get a close-up using a telephoto lens or I could change lenses to a panorama if I used a wide-angle lens. I could block out light glare with a polarizing filter or block out a certain color and accentuate other colors if I chose a colored filter. I could create dramatic effects depending on which filter or lens I chose. Now with digital cameras you can do a lot of that with the camera itself, but go with me here on the metaphor of changing our filters and lenses because it works in better with my talk. now, to someone who has no background in the use of those lens and filters, they probably wouldn't know how to change the outcome of the photo or even what was possible to do with those lenses and filters. The truth is, we just don't know what we don't know. That's why teachers and guides and tour guides are so helpful. They show us what we might otherwise not know how to do or what we're looking at. There was a program I got involved with at one point in my life called Landmark Education. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I felt it was a pretty remarkable program in a lot of ways. One of the things I learned from my participation in Landmark is that we don't know what we don't know. That seems obvious, but I had never really thought of it. And they demonstrated it by a big circle. And they said, in this circle, if this circle represents all knowledge, there's this little pie slice that represents what you know, and you know you know it. And then there's another pie slice that represents what you don't know, and you know you don't know it. So for example, I know how to drive. And I know I know how to drive. I know how to sew. I know how to cook certain dishes. Um, I know how to read. I know how to make certain kinds of jewelry. I know how to do the kind of law that I do. These are all things that I know how to do and I know that I know how to do them. And that's one part of my circle of knowledge. Then the next part is the part of knowledge of what I know that I don't know. For example, I don't know how to fly an airplane. I know that I don't know how to scuba dive or solve a physics equation. I know that I don't know how to drive a semi-truck or play the piano. I can't name all the stars or constellations. So this part of my circle is probably way bigger than the part where I know what I know. But the biggest part of my circle is that part that I don't know what I don't know. And so the question becomes, how do we access that part of knowledge where we don't know, we don't even know that we don't know it? Well, travel for me helps expand that field of knowledge for me. This part of the circle that's where we don't know what we don't know is also called our blind spots. It may also be, in in addition to knowledge, it may be biases or prejudices of which we aren't aware. It may be knowledge about other cultures or beliefs that would astound us if we knew about it. We really can't gauge this area because we don't know what we don't know. In my landmark work, one of the workshops was about learning about our strengths and what they call our straight jackets. Those are patterns of behavior we have that we aren't even aware of, that the strength is a strength that's helped us survive our childhood and our adulthood Um, But if it becomes too overpowering, it can become a straitjacket preventing us from acting outside the bounds of our self-imposed tethers. For example, when I was a little girl, there was something that was a normal thing to do that I had always had my mother help me with. And then by about age four, I recall that she had a meeting going on at our house and I started yelling for her to come and help me with this task. When she came in, she was annoyed and said, really, I think it's about time for you to be able to do this yourself. And so from then on, I did. But not only that, the more subtle message I took into my four-year-old brain was I should be able to do things by myself. And I did. I learned to do a lot of things by myself. And I had an attitude of, I can do this. I can do it myself and I should do it myself. And I ought not to ask for help. So you can see where this is going to lead into a straitjacket of me thinking I can do everything myself and not even knowing necessarily when to ask for help. Sometimes I'm carrying something and I get part way to where I'm trying to carry it to and realize I can't carry this any farther, it's too heavy. And I live by myself, so a lot of things I have to do by myself, like haul my 50-pound bag of dog food, but, um, you know, that's what I have to do. But um, sometimes people offer help, and I can just automatically, instinctively say, oh, no, I can do it. But I'm learning that it's also a gift to say, well, thank you. I would love to have your help, because don't we all love to help somebody? And so by saying yes, to having somebody help us. We're giving them the gift of letting them help us as well as receiving the help that we probably need to begin with. So I'm working on accepting help and also learning to ask for help, which is a challenge for me. Another thing we've worked on in that Landmark Workshop was learning our shtick. This was described as the way we go through the world without even recognizing that it governs how we interact with others. In this workshop, we broke into small groups, and try as I could, I could not identify my stick. Maybe I thought I don't have one. Um, So when it came time to report out from our small groups, each of us had to stand in front of the group as a whole and say what our stick was, and I had to say, I don't know what mine is. I, I don't know. I couldn't come up with it. And the leader looked at me and he said, Well, I know what it is. And he said, I said, Well, what is it? And he said, Anybody else in here know what her stick is? And several hands went up and somebody said, Her stick is, I'm right. And he said, Well, that's not all of it. Her stick is, I'm right and you're wrong. And I said, No, it isn't. <laughs> And that was the reaction of the audience as well. <laughs> so I began, it, in showing me what I didn't know, I began to see that behavior in myself over and over and over. In negotiations, it would come up all the time. The union would say something and I would argue, and of course my attitude was I'm right and you're wrong. Um, so I'm, I've been, it's been a lifelong effort to try and modulate or modify that stick. And so I have a joke here, and another synchronicity is um, Carol, Susan. I, I don't know why I keep calling call you Carol. Susan has a shirt on, and I don't know if you noticed it today, but I said, that shirt goes in perfectly with this joke. So um, in this joke, there's a husband and wife, and they're having a petty argument, and neither is willing to admit they're wrong. Finally, the wife said, okay. Let's compromise. I'll admit I'm wrong if you'll admit I'm right. Okay, said the husband, and being a gentleman, he told her to go first. I'm wrong, she said, and with a twinkle in his eye, the husband said, you're right. (laughs) So in thinking about that realm of mystery, the realm of I don't know what I don't know, it occurred to me that we each look at the world through our own set of filters, and we probably don't even necessarily know we even have a set of filters that we're looking at things through. Our filters are the products of our upbringing, our experiences, our training from parents and our culture, our prejudices, our gender, any number of things. It's not a bad thing generally, but our worldview and our view of our fellow human beings is limited by the filters that we may be wearing. And our worldview can expand to the extent we can become aware of and remove our filters, and recognize that they don't always allow us to see the world the way it actually is, but only the way we see it through those lenses and filters. And often it just takes a glimpse of something different to help us see what we weren't previously aware of. We make decisions for ourselves about what is true, and we may judge others when they are different from us, But the extent to which we do that depends on our perceptions and our perceptions are formed by our filters through which we view our experiences. And again, we may not even know that we do this because, again, we don't know what we don't know. For me, travel travel helps me change my filters. About four years ago, I took a trip to Peru. There were so many experiences on that trip that changed my perspective. One part of the trip involved a flight over what are called the Nazca Lines. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they're designs that were drawn in the desert in southern Peru that are enormous, and they can only be perceived from the air. They were um, estimated to have been drawn about 400, or 1200, I'm not sure, AD. Um, but they weren't actually discovered in the modern world till about 1930 when someone happened to be standing at the edge of the desert and looked out and saw what looked to be a shape of a hummingbird. So I'd like to show you a few little pictures. It's probably about the size of a five-story building. And they call it the Happy Astronaut because it kind of looks like an astronaut. You see big boots, you see what could be a helmet, and he's got his hand up, kind of waving, hello. Okay, so that's one of those figures. This is a figure of a hummingbird that's probably the size of about three football fields. And I think that's all the pictures I put in here because I was having trouble transferring them over to Jay. But there is a picture of a monkey and they, they don't know how these people knew about monkeys because this is the desert right near the ocean and there are not and never have been any monkeys in that area. There's a picture of a dog. There's a picture of what looks like a chicken with hands. They're not really sure what that is. There's a picture of a giant tree. And then there's all these weird lines that actually from the air kind of look like runways. It's very odd. Um, And they've never been able to figure out what those represent, why they were drawn, how they were drawn, how people could draw these being on the ground when they're clearly only really visible from the air. I have to say it was quite an interesting flight over these Nazca lines. It was about a half hour of going there was a small plane with about 12 passengers, and the pilot would say, okay, those of you on the right, here we go, and the plane would go like that. And Okay, now you on the left, you get to see. And so the whole half hour was going like that. I was happy to get back to solid ground. Almost didn't make it. So that was very interesting to, you know, something that's on the ground. It had tire tracks because people used to drive across it not realizing it was these incredible drawings until they saw it from the air, and now it's preserved. Um, and in that part of Peru, it is so arid that I can't remember the amount of rainfall, but it's something like a quarter of an inch every five years or something like that. And the, the they've discovered that the elevation and the wind currents of that part of the desert never quite hit the ground. The wind currents are always just slightly above the ground, and that's probably why these lines have been able to be preserved for all these centuries. It's just very fascinating. Um, then, uh, one of the things in Peru and in many um, Countries that we consider to be poor by our standards, is there are a lot of people, um, women and children especially, that rush up to tourists to try and sell you something? Um, I don't know if you've done any traveling, but they, if as the bus pulls up, there's this crowd of women and their little kids, and they're trying to sell you all kinds of little trinkets. That, of course, they all handmade and they all look exactly the same, but. Um, it was starting to get annoying to us tourists because we felt guilty of saying no and we see these cute little kids and they were hungry and you know we just we felt kind of overwhelmed um, or they would want us to take their picture and then pay them money um, so that they could eat uh, and one day our tour guide explained to us he said you know the people of Peru love to work we love to work And he said, and we have no social network. We have no social um, underpinning. So if we don't work, we don't eat. So these people who come to try and sell you things, that's their job. Or the person who rushes out into traffic to wash a windshield and then ask for money, that's their job. He said, that's all they're doing is they're working. And it shifted my whole perspective. So instead of being an annoyance, I felt respect for these people who were trying so hard to earn money to put food on their tables. And even with that, the people were so generous. There was one village that we stayed in overnight and we were um, got to go to a family home for dinner. And this home, it looked like Their house was off of a dirt road and it was just solid doors, kind of like a warehouse district or something. But they opened the doors, they had a dirt floor and we walked in um, and they had spread this beautiful table just loaded with food that they had grown and prepared themselves. And they were so proud to share their food with us and they were so proud that we had come to their home. And for them, it was just such a gift that we were there, and for us, it was such a gift that they shared so much with us. It was just a beautiful evening. And we didn't, none of us could communicate with them because in that part of Peru, they didn't speak Spanish, they spoke Chechen, um, which is a different language. Our guide could speak both, Um, but he translated for us. And at one point, um, I'm sweating into my eyes here, Um, at one point, there was a calendar on the wall and it had scenes of Yosemite in California. And so I told our guide, well, that's where I'm from. And so he translated that and he learned that the little boy had done something really spectacular in school and his teacher had given him this calendar as a present. And he said, when I told him that's where you're from, he's very excited and you know, tomorrow he will be the hero of the, of the school classroom because he'll go there and he'll say, I met someone who was from there and he 'll be very special because he met someone who 's from this place. They had such joy now, another day in Peru, we visited an ancient ruin, and there was a market outside the walls and As we walked back through the market, a group of children were running after me, trying to get me to take their picture from some money for some money. I decided I would, after the guide 's explanation, so I paid them, and we were getting ready to. Um, set up the photo shoot um, when two other children ran up and wanted to be in the picture. So the other two kids weren't very happy that these kids had horned in on them, so that was the first picture. But they got it together, (laughs) and so that was the second picture. So I just I thought they were adorable and, and I gave them some money and they ran over and gave it to their mothers and they helped contribute to the family um, coffers for dinner that night. Then another day we visited a cemetery in Cusco to learn how the Peruvians honor their ancestors and our guide hired two little boys to assist him. He gave them money to go buy flowers and a lime, and then they came with us to the place where the crypts were. And in this um, cemetery, they don't bury their dead, they have these large structures above ground and there's little um, crypts and the, I don't know if it's the bones or the ashes, but they're put into these little shelves and there's multi-story, It's like a condo. Uh, with multi-stories and each, the front of each crypt has a little window and they have little um, objects behind the window and he explained that this is how they honor their ancestors. So in one there was those little solar flowers going back and forth and another there was fresh flowers and another there was a little bottle of coke and a truck. He said probably that person drove a truck and liked to drink Coca-Cola or something. And so he hired these little boys um, to help him and um, they demonstrated how they clean the brass on these crypts and then they run back and forth they take the vases they dump the old dirty the old dead flowers out and fill it with water and put in fresh flowers and they get it all tidied up and they clean it they worked really hard and he gave them some money he paid them and he said now some americans feel that's you know child labor and they kind of you know criticize us for that but he said let me explain for, For these boys to work there, they had to be in school. They could pick to be in school in the morning or the afternoon, but they had to be in school, and they had to be making satisfactory progress, or they weren't allowed to help like this. And he said, this is how they help their families. And they feel very proud of their efforts to help their families this way, put food on the table, and they work very hard. And he said, and they perform a a wonderful service because some of these crypts are up very high. And if it's an elderly person whose family crypt it is, whose family member is there, they can't get up there. And he said, it's very important to us that we maintain these crypts. And if you notice one that's kind of... uh, not been looked after. He said, we never tell the person. We, of course, know everybody, knows everybody, but we don't tell them their you know, crypt is looking kind of shoddy. Uh, we say, gosh, it looks like you haven't been able to visit for a while. You know. And um, just as he was finishing this explanation, an elderly woman came up and asked if she could hire the boys. And her husband's crypt was way up high. And so they brought the ladder over, and they proceeded to help her get her her husband's crypt all cleaned up. So it changed my perspective from that standpoint of these boys and the work that they were doing. So that experience in Peru taught me to change my filters about what I was seeing and the judgments I was making. I gained a great deal of respect for these hardworking people and that knowledge of how I judged them through my privileged filter of growing up white in the U.S. was an important lesson for me. In May of this year, I traveled with my sister to the Balkans, as I mentioned earlier, the countries of Romania, Bulgaria, Macedonia, and Albania. We learned from a woman what it was like to live in Romania during the communist rule with no food, no money, no freedom, and constant fear that a friend or neighbor or even a family member would report them to the government as subversive. She said that after the fall of communism, the new democratic government allowed people to view their files to see who had reported them to the communists. Her her father had been reported, but he chose not to view his file. He said, that part of my life is over. I don't want to revisit it, whatever their motives were. I don't want to know who who turned me in. But someone she worked with, a man that she worked with, decided he wanted to look at his file, and so he did. And he found out that the person who had turned turned him in to the government was his wife. But the government offered extra food rations for those who turned others in. And when you're starving or your children are starving, it's hard to know what you would be willing to do to put food on your table. Listening to her and realizing that she and I are probably close in age made me appreciate even more the freedom that we enjoy here in this country and made me know more than ever that I never want to take that for granted. On that same trip, we visit a whole lot of old churches, all of them Orthodox Catholic churches. At one point, our guide said, I know we're seeing a lot of churches, and you may be getting tired of them, but church and religion is the core of who we are. So if you were to learn about our culture, we visit churches. And our churches were beautifully illustrated, and that's how the priests would tell the story, the Bible stories. They would point to the pictures in the church, and they're centuries old. Um And one, one of the days we were in Bulgaria, and we were entering a church where there was a service taking place. It was a weekday morning around nine o'clock in the morning, and about forty to fifty people were in the church listening to mass. And on that particular morning, I had received an email that um, a dear friend, um, Mayor Dunham, had just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. So I was feeling very tender as we went into that church. And on that particular day, our tour guide, not knowing anything about what was going on with me, chose to buy um, a, a dozen um, candle tapers and offer them to us if we wanted to light a candle. And, you know, I grew up Methodist, and we didn't light candles like that in the Methodist church, but I really love that tradition. I love going into a church and lighting a candle and saying a prayer. And so I took two of the candles. And I lit one for Mare and I lit one for Mac and her family. And it just, um, it gave me great comfort to offer a prayer in this beautiful place with so many people praying um, and to offer that prayer for them. Another travel experience I had one time that was really profound for me, um, what happened in Assisi in Italy. And Assisi is the home of St. Francis. And for whatever reason, I've always had an affinity for St. Francis. I was born in San Francisco in St. Francis Children's Hospital. And I noticed one day I had little statues and pictures of St. Francis all over my house. And like I said, I was born—I was raised Methodist, and we didn't have saints in the Methodist Church. So, um, you know, it it was interesting to me, but I just always— I think it was because of his love of the animals and his sense of purity about the Catholic Church. But I've always had an affinity for St. Francis. And so when we went to Assisi, I wanted to visit the Cathedral of St. Francis. And um, before we had gone to Assisi, I had gone to Padua, to the Cathedral of St. Anthony. And when I walked into that cathedral, it, the energy was palpable. I could feel centuries of prayer I could feel centuries of people's lives, of baptisms, of weddings, of funerals, of praise, of sadness. It just overwhelmed me, and I started to cry. And a couple of other people in my tour group did likewise. And in that church, they had a priest sitting at a table who was offering blessings and inviting you to leave a donation. And so I decided to go get a blessing from this Catholic Italian priest. and. Um, he was very kind, and he didn't speak any English, and I spoke no Italian or Latin. I'm not sure what my blessing was in, but I figured God knew. And I got a blessing, and it just it felt very holy to me. So when I went into the Cathedral of St. Francis in Assisi, I wanted to um, re-experience that sense of sacredness. But as I walked in, it was like a circus. There were machines to... Uh, change money, and there might have even been an ATM machine, I'm not sure, and there were souvenir things, and there was all this hustle and bustle, and I found the priest who was giving blessings, and I went over and I gave some money, and he pushed a piece of paper across the table to me, and then, you know, kind of motioned for me to move aside and, you know, bring up the next person, and so I said something like, could I have a blessing? And he goes, no, 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 no. And he pointed to what I had donated and indicated it wasn't enough to deserve a blessing. And I was horrified. So I gave him back the piece of paper and I walked out. Um, it was not a sacred experience at all. Um, so we went on down the hillaways and went to the church of San Damiano, which is the church where St. Um, Francis had his vision and the cross of San Damiano spoke to him saying, rebuild my church. And he took that literally and figuratively, and he rebuilt that little church of San Damiano. And then he proceeded to start the Franciscan order that he wanted to get more in the essence of Jesus' teaching, a more simple simple approach. And um, that was a very sweet little church. But the cross of San Damiano is actually up back up the hill in Assisi in the Basilica of St. Clair. So we went back up the hill and we went into this sweet church of St. Clair, it's a basilica, and we went in. It was very open. Um, It had had a lot of damage in the earthquake and they hadn't yet been able to fix it. Um, And so the whole central part was just completely empty. It was like this great big huge hall, but there was this little chapel off to the side. And I went in there and there was the cross of San Damiano on the wall. And so I knelt to say some prayers. And as I did, I felt a hand on my head. And in my mind, I heard the words—I have to find them. In nomine Patris et Filii et spiritu Sancti. And like I said, I wasn't raised Catholic, but I knew that that meant in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I truly felt blessed. And, of course, there was no person standing there. So I got up, kind of in a daze, and wandered back into the main sanctuary area. And I um, saw a sign with an arrow pointing down. And so I thought, well, I'll go see what's downstairs. And I went down, and there was nobody else down there. And it was this hallway, and it was a glass enclosure with St. Clair's remains behind glass. Now, this is in August, in the middle of summer, the highest tourist season, and there was not another person there. And I stood there, and I had an overwhelming sense of having completed a pilgrimage. And I burst into tears. And I can't explain it. I don't know what it was about. I have a theory. But it was a very sacred moment. And I walked back up the stairs, just feeling completely overwhelmed and blessed. And I decided to make a donation to that church. And so they had a little table with little pamphlets and a basket for donations. And I opened my wallet, and I discovered I had one euro coin, which is worth about a $1.32, and a 50 euro note, which is worth about $60. So I had a choice of which one I'm going to leave in the basket. And I decided to leave the 50 euro note, because my experience was so sacred. And so I did, and as I turned to walk out of the church, I heard someone calling, Signore, 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 and I turned around and this tiny ancient little nun was trotting after me, and she grabbed my hands and she pulled me back to the table and she pointed and she said, you know, I could, she didn't speak English, but I got the impression that what she was saying, do you know how much you left? Do you know you left a 50 euro note? And I said, "Sisi, you know, I know how to speak Spanish, para usted, but I didn't know how to say it, but you know, I kind of said, it's for you, it's for you, it's for this church. And um, she just was overwhelmed, grazie, 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 and she handed me every little pamphlet she had and (laughs) all the way to the door, grazie, grazie. And it was just such a contrast and such a wonderful experience. Now, one of the other travel experiences I had uh, that I wanted to share with you uh, occurred on a cruise to Alaska. And right before this cruise, our church was doing this um, training process called, it's a mouthful, but it's called The Art and Practice of Living As If No One and Nothing Is Against You. And it was a, a like a toolbox process for us to take anything that came across our path as an emotional upset and have a process to get behind what the emotion was and figure out what it was in us that was being triggered to bring it out into the light and to heal it. And so my homework, the week I was going on this cruise, was to have an experience that upset me and then do this process. And I said in our class, well, I'm going on this cruise with three really dear friends. I don't think anything's going to happen. (laughs) And so, Um, I flew with my friend Robin up to Seattle, and we were meeting this couple friend from Santa Rosa who were flying in from San Francisco, and they had never been on a cruise before, and she wasn't sure what the process was, and I said, well, just you get there an hour early, just wait, we'll all meet up at the airport, and then we'll take the bus to the ship, and then we'll be great. So Robin and I got there, and this couple friend weren't there. And um, I tried calling them, and it went right to voicemail, and I couldn't get a hold of them. And her brother had been quite ill, so I was afraid something had happened to him. And so anyway, um, Robin said, well, let's just go on to the ship. And I said, well, no, we need to wait for this friend. I mean, I don't want her to get here and not know what to do. So we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And Robin kept saying, I'm I'm sure they're fine. Let's just go to the ship. And and, uh, so after three hours, I finally said, "Okay, let's go ahead and go. And we get to the ship, and of course there's a long line, and by the time we get on and we're gonna go have lunch in the dining room, and we walk in, and there's my friends sitting there enjoying their lunch. And I went over to the table and I said, where have you guys been? And she said, oh, we got here hours ago. You know, we landed and we got on the bus and we came over here, we had a wonderful tour of the ship, we got into our cabin, we got relaxed, we're having a nice lunch, it's just great, and I said, "Well." Don't you remember we had this agreement to meet at the airport? And she goes, Well, I just figured you'd know that we'd come on ahead. So I was angry. Anyway, so there was my opportunity to do this process, and remember my stick is i 'm right and you 're wrong, so I had a real hard time with this process, not making her wrong in this, but bless my friend Robin, who kept saying, "No, what is it going on with you, not her, but with you and so finally, I dug and dug and got it was one of those times of taking my filter off and seeing that what it came down to for me was that if she really knew me, she would know I wouldn't have left the airport because that was the plan we made. But she didn't do that, so she must not really know me. And if she, one of my closest friends, doesn't really know me, then who really does know me? And if she really knew me and loved me, she wouldn't have done that. And so she doesn't really love me. And if this dear friend of mine doesn't really love me, then I'm not really lovable. And that was the heart of my upset. And once I figured that out, the next step of the process is to be in gratitude to this person for bringing that to the surface. And I got to where I could feel genuine gratitude to her to raise this and bring it up to the surface. And then the next step is to go and thank them for their role, playing the role that they played in this. And I was able to do that. And the emotional... Part of it was gone. It was completely gone and I got to take my filter off and see something in me that needed some more healing. Now just as an aside, my friend Robin on that trip, um, two weeks before our trip, her 31-year-old son had been suddenly killed in a car accident. Um, He had had an emotional breakdown, was on his way to the hospital, jumped out of his father's car, wouldn't get back in the car, was out on the off-ramp of a freeway, and a truck came around the curve and hit him and suddenly killed him. And she was devastated. He was her baby. Um, She had three sons, and this was her youngest. He was a beautiful soul, a musician. He lived with her. Um, And she was devastated, but she still wanted to go on this cruise. And she herself had a really sacred moment one sunrise up on the top deck. She was standing watching the sun come up, and there was a man standing there. And um, he said some things to her that just constituted a real healing for her. And out of her journey of dealing with her grief and her son's death and this trip being an important part of that process, she actually wrote a book called From Grief to Grace, A Mother's Journey. And she's written a follow-up book and now she's developed an online course for parents who lose a child to help them process their grieving. So it was pretty amazing. So some of the things I've learned through my travels are many people in many countries love America. For example, when we visited Dubrovnik in Croatia, we learned that the historic city was attacked and bombarded by the Serbs and pretty much destroyed, and then the U.S. gave it $10 million to rebuild it, and they're very grateful to America for that help. On our tour of Vietnam, the young people also loved Americans and want to be part of the world. Some of the older people, still, the war is too raw for them, um, but the younger people welcome interactions with Americans. And um, one of the things I learned there is that the communist government gave everybody who wanted a farm a free piece of land, about an acre per person. Um, And they can grow on it whatever they want, but their payment is a 200 pound Um, sack of rice to the government once a year. The government then takes all of that rice and sells it, exports it, and that helps fund the government. Meanwhile, the people get to keep any of the extra profits or um, anything they raise um, themselves. So it's it's a hybrid form of communism and capitalism that seems to be working for them. Another thing I've learned in my travels is that in many countries while the people themselves are poor in terms of our American standard of living, they have strong social networks and family is all important. I was in Greece earlier this year and noticed I didn't see any homeless people in Athens. Now in Sacramento we have a terrible situation with homeless all over the place. And um, I only saw one person begging in, in the city of Athens. And we didn't see all of Athens, but we were there for about three days. And I asked our tour guide about that, and she said, no, we don't have a homeless problem. And I think it's because they have extended families, and they just keep everybody in the family, and, and they all take care of each other. A person I met from Denmark said he loves living in Denmark. And I said, don't you, aren't you bothered by the high taxes? And he said, not at all. We get so much for it. We have free childcare." Parents get a a year off to to bond with their children. We have free medical care. He said college students have free college, and they get an extra $1,000 a month to help pay their their, um, costs while they're in college. He said, when I can't live on my own, I can move into a senior residence. It's all paid for. My medical is all paid for. He said, I don't worry about growing old. It's a beautiful place. And uh, he said, I love it here. Um, In Copenhagen also, they have a huge plant to incinerate their garbage and it's right on the outskirts of town and um, they've developed it so that it has such uh, filters or scrubbers or whatever they're called, so it doesn't pollute at all and they burn their garbage. But the building itself is shaped like a ski lift and in in the wintertime they use it for a ski lift, for a ski slope, so it's got a dual purpose. So, I have long believed that the most essential desire people have is to love and be loved, and I think that is true all over the world. I believe that we are called by God to move the evolution of humanity forward through raising our own vibration and being a stand for love. It can be challenging at times, but it is so important. And for me, CFO and JFO has provided opportunities to realize my filters and lenses, to take them off in a safe and loving environment, see the world of spirituality and Jesus and the Bible from different perspectives. And if I don't agree with it, as Mike says, hmm, there's a thought. (laughs) So I invite you, if you choose, to think about what kind of filters you might be using to view your world, and in discovering them, Maybe remove them and see what you may have been missing. And if I, I know for me, if I experience judgment of another, if I find myself judging another, then chances are good that I'm viewing that person through one of my filters. And when I'm intimidated by someone who is different from me, or that, that may be an indication I'm, imbu- I'm viewing that person through one of my filters as well. And I sometimes wonder how much of my world I've been missing because of looking at it through a different lens or filters. So one of my intentions is to start being aware of that and start trying to remove my filters. So thank you.
1: Before we have our 9 o'clock prayer, I just want to let you know that tonight we invite you. We invite you first to be blessed. In just a minute, we're going to have a corporate blessing experience that will lead into our 9 o'clock prayer. It won't take long, but we invite you to enter into that to, number two, kick off our our all-night prayer vigil. You may have noticed the sign-up sheet outside. If you haven't done so already, sign up for a slot and keep vigil with us tonight as we cover the camp in prayer. We also invite you tonight that if you feel led to receive prayer for anything, be it healing or something else, we will have a circle in the back with some volunteers there and people to pray with you if you feel led to go there. They'll be there for a while, so feel free to join that circle if you would like to pray tonight or receive prayer. And we also invite you to write a letter to God if you don't know what a letter to God is, Carol's going to give us a brief explanation. The materials will be on that table back there. Everything you need will be provided. And again, if you don't know what it is, Carol's going to tell you.
2: <laughs> Which I'm sure most of you do. There are two um, activities tonight that are voluntary but uh, actually quite meaningful. We've been filled over this week with the talks and the singing and prayer time and now is the time to be able to um, give. Um, So there's the prayer vigil and that is prayer throughout the night. Um, The prayer room will will be open. You can also pray in your room. You can pray on the grounds, wherever you want to be. Um, We've already gotten some sign-ups for the time. It goes from nine o'clock to seven a.m. in the morning, so throughout the night. There will be people praying. Um, the other piece is the letters to God. And the letters to God is something that sounds a little strange, but um, is actually quite prophetic. What it is is on the front page, as most of you know, you've done this, um, the front page, you write your heart's desires to the Lord. Um, you pray, you write down what's troubling you, what uh, your concerns are, and um, how you're. Uh, feeling about your relationship with God, on the back you write God's response to you, God's voice to you. And that is mailed back to you in six months or so, in the middle of the winter usually we get this envelope. The envelope needs to be addressed to yourself. Um, so uh, you fold up your paper and put it in the envelope with your address on it and in the winter um, you'll get this envelope with your writing on it and you'll think hmm, what is this? And it is your letter to God as Mike Hegeman uh, showed uh, saving them is really quite a profound exercise in faith um, because you see how God speaks to you. Um, In any event the, the people who have done this uh, regularly have found that God has spoken to them um, at just the right moment with the, just the right words by using the letter to God. So I highly encourage you to do that. Thank you. Thank you mm-hmm.
1: And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to just form a circle around the room. And we're going to have a little blessing, and that will lead into our 9 o'clock prayer. And after that's over, we'd ask that just please keep the silence as you leave and, uh, and you move on to whatever uh, you're guided to do this evening. So if we could move quietly into a circle, and if someone needs a chair to be in the circle, please help them with that.
3: So as Dana mentioned, we're going to do a short group blessing, and we're going to do it in such a way that you can be both a giver and a receiver at the same time. And um, anybody who was ever in a Greg Harrison prayer group will remember some of these prayers and this way of praying for the person on our left and our right. So first, we're going to bless the person on our right. I'll say these words to the front, and then I'll speak them, and you can say them in your mind for that person on your right. Veni Sancti Spiritus, come Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for this person on our right. May you be in the right place at the right time, doing and saying the right things with the right people. I pray that the Spirit of God would be above you and below you, to your left and to your right, that the Spirit of God would go before you and would be behind you and would dwell within you. May the Spirit of Jesus Christ bring you healing in body, mind, and soul and bestow upon you a peace that the world can neither grant nor take away from this day forward and in the year ahead. Amen. And now for the person on your left. May you be in the right place at the right time doing and saying the right things with the right people. I pray that the Spirit of God would be above you and below you, to your left and to your right, that the Spirit of God would go before you and be behind you and would dwell within you. And may the Spirit of Jesus Christ bring you healing in body, mind, and soul, and bestow upon you a peace that the world can neither grant nor take away from this day forward and in the year ahead. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thy
1: kingdom come,
3: I will be done, done, on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Let there, there be peace be on, on earth, and, and let it begin with me.